she's the one who first said, look, just write her out of it. You know, you don't need her permission to make a movie. You know? No. So, and then, so we talked about that, and then, like I said, we, we just felt like we were just, you know, we'd just been through this whole journey and had all these pieces in place. The idea of starting over just seemed absurd. Mm. So that's why two years went by until Dave just one day said, you know, we've done all this work. Uh, let's just write the book instead of waiting for somebody else to come in and say we're allowed to do what we're doing. Yeah. So, no, I, I, well, which leads me to the question... Because you know how they say there's certain events in your life where you know where you were the minute it happened, you know, Kennedy assassination, whatever. I know where I was when I was sneaking around in my old man's record collection when I found my first Richard Pryor record. Mm-hmm. And it was, um, you know, the record, was it, was it something I said? Yeah, I love that, one, yeah. So imagine, you're nine, mm-hmm. so it's already wrong. You're yeah. nine and the first thing you hear is, you know, yeah. uh, Texas police officers teaching Vietnamese immigrants how to hate black people. Yeah, you know what I mean? Right. That's yeah. his entree into American society yeah. for Vietnamese the refugees. And I just remember, there are, there are a couple moments in my life that I remember musically and, and comedically, and they, they've meshed so hard into my core. Like, mm. prior, at that time, like, I mean, I, I wigged out. Mm. So, you know, and I remember this is a time when Eddie Murphy was like, the world for all my friends and you know everyone and, and I just kept sitting there going what this guy this yeah. guy this you know and I wasn't saying this guy's Charlie Parker you, yeah. you don't understand it's like it's yeah. him and Lenny Bruce like you're listening but he was Charlie Parker I mean yeah, he I really think, was I think Bird is is the great analogy mm. and I was just talking to you don't think Lenny was Charlie Parker because I kind of think a, a prior uh, is trained you know what I mean like I kinda... no, I know what you mean <laughs> but I mean just for me I've always equated or long for a long time equated Richard to, to Bird oh. and his incredible influence and his intense vulnerability and the fact that yeah. like I was just talking on the phone this morning. Do you, you know who the actor um, Dion Graham is? He was on The Wire. Oh, wait, Wire. which character in The Wire? He was Councilman Rupert Bond. Oh, you yeah. Know him? Anyway, he's reading uh, the audiobook. Um, he's yeah. reading the audiobook? Yeah. Oh, just to make sure. Oh, no, no, oh he's, he's reading it. He's, oh. he's recording the audio version of our book. Um, <laughs> Sorry. He was going to start yesterday, but he's been under the weather. So uh, tomorrow okay. he's going to go to the studio. So we, he had some questions and talked to both Dave and I. I've talked to him a number of times. Yeah. But we were talking this very moment about my impulse to equate Richard with Bird. Mm. This idea that people are so shocked by their, you know, Richard's unreliable behavior in, in the real world, to yeah. put it mildly. And I'm saying you can't, ultimately you can't separate the vulnerability that allowed Richard to offer what he did from the vulnerability that showed his brokenness when he was off stage. Yeah. And ditto Bird. Yeah. You know, anybody who's going to be that deep and that far out on the wire, you know, is, is, a, is a wounded and, and vulnerable person. You yeah. can't get that deep creatively no. without making yourself without being that vulnerable. No, it's so this, he Because he'd asked, he said, it's important to me to understand before I go record this, What what's the first thing you think of when I ask you what do you want people to take away from the book? And I said, sympathy for how vulnerable Richard was in life. Not just, you know, he was genius, we loved him, but he was such a fuck up. You mm-hmm. cannot separate those two things. Mm-mm. You know, you couldn't have had that if he hadn't have been that also. Yeah, that doesn't mean it's all excusable. I'm just saying we have to have great empathy for, you know, how broken he was, which is what allowed him to reflect back our collective humanity yeah. as expansively as he did. Yeah, I, I remember there was a certain point, even as a kid, like maybe when the the 
you know, the, the concert movies came out on cable, so maybe they came out like two years after the fact, like mm-hmm. from the theaters. And I remember watching it the first time, and even as like an 11 or 12 year old, and mind you, I mean, I don't think I'm any great sort of thinker, but like growing up in my household, you're like Pryor and Louis Jordan and Train and Bert, like these were like, we didn't go to church, that was church. Mm-hmm. So understanding that, like when I heard Pryor, and I, especially when I heard the special, is it? It's live on Sunset Strip when he does the Africa trip and he comes back and he yeah, explains. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I I remember not being so blown away. I mean, as a kid, you know, being like, I I, I wasn't laughing. I was sort of like, that's you know, that's not funny. He just said he's never going to use this word again, and it really means something. And you hear all the nervous laughter yeah. and woo. And then you really think about it and you go, wow, I mean, this, we've witnessed this guy take a journey over the course of yeah. more than a decade, but a decade in the, you know, sort right, of as right. a celebrity. And I just remember being like, you know, it's not even about him being funny. This guy shares everything in his life all the time. And that, you know, as I got older and I got really tight with Hal Wilner and I he, he, he yeah, and I know you know how, but, you know, he hit me to Lenny Bruce harder than my old man. Uh, because Hal lived a life very similar to Lenny's yeah. for a while, and he's yeah. very open about it, and, mm-hmm. you know, and I love him for that. Yeah. But that's why I always think of, you know, there's, there's Lenny and Richard, and, and they, they lived that life. So, you know, the last three years of Lenny's life, he became more of a lawyer than lawyers because, yeah. he, he, you know. Yeah. And I just, you know, I just remember, you know, being around so many people. And Rashan, actually, you know, Richard's, you yeah. know, right-hand man was like, you know, people just couldn't elevate. They, they wouldn't they couldn't join him at that point in his career and be like, what do you mean? Like, you won't say this? Like, you won't say nigger anymore? Mm-hmm. Like, that was the punchline for you? Like, I think it really threw him off. Like, you know, I think it threw Pryor off big time that, you know, at that point in his career, you know, mm-hmm. he, people didn't follow him, but he... But also, he he had no business making that particular film when he made it. I mean, he was in such bad shape. He was so pushed and cajoled so aggressively pushed into making a Sunset Strip record, and he was not prepared to do it. I mean, it's a painful movie for me to watch compared to, you know, the Long Beach, you know, just the live in concert. Sure. I think, film that I, I think remains the greatest film stand-up routine of all yeah. time. No, I... I mean, one person, on, you know, on a stage with a microphone for an hour and 15 minutes talking about everything that matters, you know? Yeah. Love, sex, death, God, yeah. race. Yeah. You know, every bit of it. Yeah. His heart attack, his... Yeah, yeah. Everything, you know. Um, yeah. You know that's you know that's when he was most kind of bird like, you know. Yeah. In that incarnation, no, the, the fire changed. He came back so spooked, you know. By the time he was up there trying to do that, in fact, the first time they tried to film that concert the night before, yeah. they ground it to a halt. Yeah. You know, they, he it, was not prepared to be doing. He should never have been out there in that moment. He should never have been asked to be out there, trying to represent himself and his artistry. And, wow. You know, I've heard so many. Different. That's my. Yeah, that's because yeah. the thing is, you know, the his manager at the time, yeah. you know, I think it's Skip. Um, oh, I always forget his name. He said there was no telling him what to do. No one told him what to do. There was never ever. Even Robin Williams goes on record in the you know saying like, you know, NBC tried to censor. You don't tell him what to do. He's gonna do what he wants to do when he wants to do it. So. I kind of wonder, like, where... Because I agree, you know, the guy's coming out of, you know, a, a 50% yeah. of his body, third-degree burn, you know, like, probably should have really cleaned up and really stayed away from the whole monster for so quite a while. My impression was, you know, from his own writing, you know, and talking to the people, is that, you know, 
he was petrified and, and did not want to go out. I mean, did not yeah. want to do it. Was not ready to come back and have to like address. You know, he was you know he was buying jokes from people. Really, he was telling more jokes than 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 you know, stories than stories. Yeah, and that's um, not you know, I mean, like he bought that joke. I mean, his friend Paul Mooney called him out on it. Like, you know, when he was trying to explain to the audience in that film that you know what had actually happened is he had you know uh, the cookie done, and, and you know, he, I mean, he bought that joke from somebody. And, really, you know, and uh, and Mooney was like, really, <laughs> that's, that's where you're going. You know, that's how you're gonna approach the, you know, that's how you're gonna address this. You <laughs> Homogenize know, and yeah. low fat. Yeah. You know. I mean, it's funny because if you, I, I've seen footage from the failed, the, the aborted sort of first yeah. night and, you know, from the second night and, and it starts out with that joke and, and, you know, people go nuts, but, you know, honestly, yeah. as a prior freak, it mm. is kind of funny and it, to yeah. hear Mooney say that and, you know. But it's like, you know, like you're not, I mean, to, to say that maybe and then follow it up with, with, you know, lay, you know, laying a bear, but he was, yeah. he was not prepared to do that. No. He was not prepared to talk about it as having been a suicide attempt. He was only willing to talk yeah. about it as having been, you know. Yeah. An accident. Right. Right, and make light of it by saying, you know, yeah. the only personal stop, you know, yeah. when you're running down the street is a guy trying to light a I cigarette mean, the, I mean, that was the only, uh, I mean, David and I have talked about this a lot, you know, it's the, it's the only thing that he wasn't completely candid about. I mean, on stage, he would talk about every, everything. Yeah. The only dishonest moment in all that was that he always talked about his drug use on stage as if it was in the past. Right. He would talk about it vividly. Right. But he always talked about it as if it was behind him, and it that's, never was. I never thought of that. That's totally true. I mean, always, never, just like never... you know, back when I used to do coke, man, I used to like what you know in the yeah. in the this is something they said when he's talking about you know I, you know I could have I could have owned Peru. Right. He you know? said yeah. He, but he always talked about it as like man, when I used to do coke. Yeah. I mean, he was no way. He was yeah. close to being behind. You know, There's the one line where he's him. like you know telling his dealer like you know. Uh, I just need a little for the weekend. Give me a kilo. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. it's so ridiculous. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's just it's just crazy. But you know, what what? Like, I know you you grew up in Detroit, right? I came of age there. In, I mean, I'm from North Carolina. My father worked for uh, Chevrolet. He was an executive oh. engineer, and at least in that day, if you were a lifer in that industry, all roads led to Detroit. Sure. So, you know, we went from Charlotte to Atlanta, a couple stops in Ohio. Oh, okay. Uh, and then moved to uh, you know a suburb, you know thirty miles north of Detroit. Oh, okay. Uh, the summer before I began high school. Oh, that's but com- I really that's straight with, coming of age. Yeah. yeah. There's so I mean, no, I really yeah. considered myself to have come of age. You know, I met you know the first friends that were important enough that I still have them, my wife included. You know, I met in that, you know, those first couple yeah. of years of you know seventy five, six, and seven. Wow. You know, uh, what a time to yeah. be near that city. Yeah. I mean, it's wow. Uh, you know, it, it, to stay on the prior thing just a little, mm-hmm. uh, you know, did you, when did you, because I, I didn't, I didn't really ask this before. Yeah. When, when did you come to prior and like, you know, how, you know, cause obviously, you know, if you're going to the, getting to the point yeah. where you and your brother are writing a book about him, yeah. I mean, there's something major in, oh, that, that's was, not minor, you know. No, no. When I was nine or 10. Oh, same um, as me. That's you great. Know, Good seeing, time. I mean, I'm, I'm probably older than you are. Yeah. Um, you know, Dave and I, as we begin uh, talking in the book, is, you know, uh, we, we, bu- we bought in, uh, in a, together a reel-to-reel tape machine from the Sears catalog from uh, yeah. uh, Cutting Grass, uh, Neighbor's Grass. And we set it up in front of the TV to record him when Richard was the guest 
host of the Midnight Special. Oh, of course, yeah. So, and we'd seen him on like Ed Sullivan, you know, that kind of thing. And seen him sort of, you know, he was on our radar. This sort of morphing into, but by the time you know that he's on Midnight Special, this 1971. Yeah, he's, you know, he is him. Yeah, you know, he's not Bill Cosby Jr. No, he's he is fully formed. Yeah, you know, and he's a lightning rod. Yeah. So that's that's what I remember is you know is us sitting there quietly because we you know actually put microphones and you know stereo microphones in front of a mono speaker. God bless. <laughs> that's dedication of, of, of a TV. Um, you know, running you know a a, a reel of uh, quarter inch Radio Shack tape, and then we've listened to it. Oh know, my God! In yeah. our bedroom later. <laughs> that's crazy. that's how you recorded music off TV. That's incredible, yeah. man. Well, Detroit at that time, I mean, we're, when did you get into, because, you know, I mean, I know your records pretty well. Like, it's funny, we have worked, I did some research, because most, you know, Charlie and I are really sitting down with people that we know really well, and I was like, you know what, I don't know Joe really well, and I think there's a beauty to that, because here's who we've both worked with. Mm. Jimmy Scott, Aaron Neville, Mose Allison, Brian Blade, the Wainwright family, Shivery, Elvis Costello, Daniel Lanois, Bill Frizzell, my favorite, mm-hmm. Van Dyke Parks, Mark Rebo, and for whatever it's worth, Richard Pryor. Yeah, yeah. Years of our life yeah, obsessed amazing. with a man. Yeah, yeah. So when I think to myself, I'm like, well, we don't really know each We met yeah, once, and yeah. I want to say on record what yeah. we talked about when we met, because we, we were at a... A, a, a water polo match, yeah. you know, in, here in Southern California. Who would ever think, by the way, that either of our kids yeah. would ever play water polo, which, by the way, I love. Yeah. Totally flipped out by this. But you turned to me and you said, how do, how do we know each other? Yeah. And I said, we don't. Yeah. I think I, said, I mentioned yeah. Wilner yeah. As, a, as a connection. Mm. But I thought it was really fitting that two guys sitting at a water polo match in, you know, yeah. in a nice town, and said, yeah. by the way, which I won't name. Yeah. Within about four minutes, Ike Quebec came up. Yeah. And I said to myself, this is the first time in the history of the world Ike Quebec has been mentioned within a water polo context. So I said, I need need to talk more with this this individual that that lives near me. Um, Yeah, I just thought that was kind of a trip. But, you know, when, when did jazz kind of come into your life because there's so much jazz but not jazz but jazz in your records uh well i i, I can pinpoint it to a day oh um i mean the day that jazz really entered my consciousness and it, and, it, and it hit me the same way probably as seeing richard the first time in that i didn't it didn't i didn't think you know here's another comedian i understood that i i don't know what even what to call this but i know that whatever this is um I need to, get, you know. Yeah. It's yeah. it's involved in who I am, or or, or it has to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I had the same thought when I saw Fellini the first time. Oh. I didn't think about it. Just here's another filmmaker. I just like I don't know what this world is, but I know it matters to me. What which film was it? Uh, it was Eight and a Half. Oh, <laughs> what an intro. Um, but for jazz, I had a really close friend in high school in in, in Rochester, Michigan, uh, a brilliant like a savant jazz pianist. He's still a professional jazz pianist in Detroit, which okay. you can imagine how you'd be such a thing these days in that mm. lost city. Mm. But anyway, I was 15, and my friend Phil Kelly um, lived uh, down the hill, d- down the dirt road from, from uh, us when I was in high school, in 10th grade. And he was also a really great photographer and had a photography class. And he turned his, a room of his parents' basement into a dark room. 
So I'd gone over on a Sunday afternoon, like a perfect autumn day, as I recall, like an October, you know, golden, beautiful, fractured light day, like as only you can find in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And just to hang out with him while he was uh, printing pictures in the, in the dark room uh, of his parents' basement. And he put on Thelonious Monk's album, Crisscross. Oh. And I just understood, like I said, I, I didn't think about it as like, oh, now I'm hearing jazz. Mm. I just thought, whatever this is, uh, it's just changed me, and I and I'm I'm gonna I'm walking through this door, whatever it is. I again, it wasn't genre specific. My response, right. it was a religious sort of experience. Yeah. I'm not being overly, mis- you know, trying to be cute to say that. Yeah. I understood that things were different now that I had heard this music. Yeah, and that was my way in. And as I've gone farther in my life, and as my professional life has continued. I feel like more and more I sort of primarily listen to jazz when I'm going back to music purely for nourishment. I mean, when I walked in and you know you turned the music off, it was Cannonball Adderley was so it was you know you it were listening Adderley. to Miles, so yeah. you know um, I walked in listening to Basie from Thirty Seven. Yeah. So I think we're in the same orbit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so you know my my sense is that you know I trained myself so savagely in my formative years. To if I hear a singer-songwriter as an example, mm-hmm. I just take it apart. I, I want to understand what, why, you know, how it's working. If I like it, I want to know why. If I don't like it, I want to know why. Huh. I just tear it apart. Really? Because I learned that's how I learned to write songs. Was you know any song that crossed my radar, I disassembled it like the way my dad, as a you know automotive expert, right? You know, as a kid in North Carolina, you know, poor dirt farmer. Just started taking tractor engines apart. Sure. Because that's how you that's how you learn. Right. Um, so even to this day, if I'm doing dishes, for instance, and another singer songwriter comes on, whether it's something old or new, mm-hmm. I still have an impulse to to put to try to project myself into it and understand how does this relate to what I do if it does. How do I understand that it doesn't if it doesn't? Right. I want to understand, I want to spot myself on the landscape because right. it's a habit of my being. Sure. When I put on Mingus, for instance, it's so beyond me that I'm back to just being a listener, which is an incredible liberation. Yeah. My brain is not trying to tear it apart. My brain is not asking myself how it can be involved in this. It's so beyond me, I'm not going to be involved yeah. as a pr- practitioner. When I listen to Duke, I don't think about how I'm going to be more Duke-like. I'm not going to be. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm just not going to be. Um, so I go back to jazz purely for that, you know, exalted ether of being inspired. Not because it's something I can, you know, here's something I can take from it, though I do. Yeah, you but really inspired do. just by that great way that art works on a lot of people, of just connecting you to your own humanity and the way that it relates to everybody else's. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, I know where I was when I heard jazz. And I mean, and yeah. mind you, I grew up in a household, you know, and it's funny, the show, we just sit and talk. So, you know, my father was so heavy in my life. There were so many things that he did and records he made that I didn't even know about. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so when I was like five or six, I think it's funny that my intro to jazz was nothing that he did. It wasn't Yusef Latif. It wasn't mm-hmm. Rasan. It was Louis Jordan in a Tom and Jerry cartoon. Mm-hmm. Doing is you is yeah. or is you ain't my baby, yeah. and it's like my head exploded, and I had the same exact feeling and reaction. I I heard that bass line, and it turns out that it's it. You know you know Charlie Drayton. 
Sure, an incredible sure. drummer, sure. close family friend. It's his grandfather playing bass. Mm. His grandfather was in the you know in that in that iteration of Louis Jordan's. Yeah. And and you know and his son and my father I didn't know this I was I was six yeah. I didn't care about any of the names or the you know all I heard was whatever I do in my life that's going to be <laughs> the center of it regardless you know it's, so it's it's interesting how and I think in a weird way that comes back into the whole you know if you're going to talk about like prior and this and the sensitivity and the emotion something hits you and you just know I mean you strike me as a also very analytical like I don't listen to stuff I don't dig and figure out why I don't dig it I just don't dig it you know what I mean no, like I mean, that's I, I, that's I don't really mean, hip I, I don't spend any time listening to things on purpose anymore no they just come up that I don't but if it comes up right I because I, I it's some it's the way that I learned yeah I just asked myself because yeah, there's that one thing when you're first listening to music as a really young person at least it was true for me um, and that's why I think you know you're 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 most susceptible to influence when you don't know that that's what's happening to you. Yeah. As you get older, you start thinking consciously about the ways in which you're influenced. It it it, it doesn't have the power. It's not nearly yeah. as subversive as when you've been undermined, as when you've been snuck up on. <laughs> but when you're young and you're taking things in, for instance, I think when I was you know ten and eleven and really obsessed with music. I mean, I was really obsessed with songs from about seven on. Yeah. Um, there's that beautiful thing where you where where you just assume that anything you hear yeah. coming out of a radio on a record must be of some quality because it's there because nobody yeah. would get to make a record if they weren't any good. <laughs> Boy, that's what, that's what we yeah. believe. But there's a beauty in that. Yeah, I mean that. You, I noticed that I was taking a lot of things in without being judgmental about them. Yeah. I just tried to take what I could take, what I could learn from them. Yeah. And then as you go on, because you're learning to identify yourself. Not just I like this and I don't like this, but the fact that I like this tells me something about who I am. Yeah. The fact that I don't like this tells me something about who I am. Yeah. Identify as something significant. Sure. And then as you go on, just because you need to, you start, you know, cutting to the chase. And you yeah. go, I don't like that, I don't have time for it. Yeah. I'm not gonna bother with it. Yeah. I don't need to explain to anybody or myself why it doesn't move me. I just know that I'm allowed to decide yeah. that that doesn't have any authority in my world. Did, move on did you go, because, you know, it's funny, I, you know, I went on, I had a detour, I didn't finish high school, my, my last three years of high school were spent with, like, Marcus Miller and Miles Davis and Luther Vandross, mm -hmm. very strange, amazing, mm -hmm. but I ended up going to college, and well, I went to music college, and I found, and, and as I hear you say this now, that's where absolutely everything stopped and sort of, and sort of, this way of, I would hear something and just be like, oh my God. Once you step into the halls mm. of Jazz University, which, mm. you know, I, I went to Berkeley in Boston, yeah. it turned into, there was such currency with what you knew, what you could play, how you could play it, how much you could play. Certain things were like, you can't like that. I remember sitting down with a kid one day and saying, oh, man, I can't get enough Ramsey Lewis and Les McCann. And, and it was a piano player, and they just were like, are you you're, like you're so kid. hip to dig? Uh, and I was yeah, yeah at that yeah, moment. Yeah. yeah, God forbid. Ramsey Yeah, or, or or even Ahmad Jamal. I had to like, and I'm like, I, I that's yeah, exactly. He I just mean, put his mind. He, he thought of Ahmad. Yeah, ask you know any any fucker what they thought yeah. of Ahmad. Ahmad Jamal to me was like, you know, when it got to that point, that them them were fighting words. You know, yeah. what I mean? 
But the thing is, it was it was really interesting, you know, because you're 19. You know, I was younger. I, I got into school like a you know 18. I guess it's just you know whatever. Same year, kids go to school, but. You're so impressionable. You're surrounded by... I mean, I went to school, you know, I, a drummer that you use a lot, Jay Belrose, incredible musician. He mm -hmm. was about two, three... Well, he was, he was three years ahead of me. Mm -hmm. So he was a monster when we were at school and all these older musicians... People recognized him time, as one at the time? Jay was heavy. Yeah. And a really sweet cat. And a really just... Well, he, he's always just... He's, been, my, he's my closest friend in life outside of my immediate family. Yeah. So that's a fact. And I don't do any work that doesn't at least attempt to involve him. I mean, the only, if he's on the road, you can't, you yeah, know, that's I mean, it. Yeah. yeah. The only reason he's not involved in a project that I work on is either if the project came to me and there was already somebody attached yeah. or Jay wasn't available when, right. when we had to work. Yeah. Uh, you know, other, you know, he, uh, just, you know, that's my language, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. We have a, and that's, that's, Big deal, man. I mean, and it's, you know, that that's, you know, I can only imagine the B team's pretty good, too. Well, the first session I ever had in this house, when the, uh, six years ago, when, when we, you know, when I first ran a session, I thought rather than just, once I was set up, just start, you know, making, you know, just doing a line check was, was, was unexciting. I said, I'm just going to have a real session. Just go. And we'll yeah. see where the... I'm going to put the boat right in the water. We'll see where the holes are. That's as it should be. And Jay was away. Um, and so, I, you know, I got uh, I got Jimmy Keltner to come play. And I've said to Jay a few times, that's, you know, that's pretty... That's pretty good when you're, you know, when you're... When you're yeah. When your B call is Jim. Keltner's... Keltner. I mean, you could just call him Keltner and you're yeah. done. Yeah. I mean, I mean there's no incredible. other. I mean, as far yeah. as that goes. And we all... All of us who, who love Jim... That's what it says on his business card, right? Yeah. <laughs> there's no other. <laughs> yeah, there's no other. He's much too humble for that, but it's true. Um, I'm, I'm jumping around a lot of conversation, but... That's the whole point of this. Don't worry um, about it. Yeah, I mean, when I met Jay, it was an instinctive understanding, and I think, I mean, he has said the same thing. He was, he felt like he was a couple of weeks away from moving back to Boston because nothing was happening for him. Right. Here. No, and I know that was the case for a and, bunch of my buddies from that generation of Berkeley Cats. They were having a hard time. I hired him... For a tour that I, I was opening for David Byrne, it was only a week away. I didn't have a drummer. Mm. Everybody that I normally would have worked with was was unavailable. Was this in New York? Is no, I lived here. Oh, it was here. Yeah, so two thousand. No way. So even as late as two thousand, Jay was saying, "Hey, man, I might, you know." Yeah, he was about. To... He said no, nothing was happening for him here. Wow, nothing shaking. Wow. Uh, he was living in Topanga, and he said mm. I felt completely out of. I, I wasn't. It was just it was nothing going on. Wow. Uh, and I called him sort of out of the blue. Uh, I didn't know who he was. I didn't expect that he knew who I was. I looked him a phone message about this tour. Um, Light speed return phone call. Well, I went back. I went to pick up my son from Arroyo Vista Elementary School, and by the time I got back, he called. And you know, my whole family was aware that it was you know I need a drummer. I don't have one. Yeah. You know, I pick up something from school, and he'd say, first thing you say when you got in the car is, "Did you find a drummer?" No. So I came back. And, I love this notion of like a third yeah. grader go, Dad, yeah. did you get a drummer? He knew it was important. Call James Gatson. So <laughs> I get back from driving and my wife yells out the kitchen window. I mean, this is how big news it was. You didn't wait until I came in the house. <laughs> hey, that guy called back. He's going to do your tour. <laughs> and I thought, great. Well, I really need him for two weeks. I was opening for David Byrne and then I was rolling right into a tour with Emilio Harris. And I had a drummer for that tour, which is a guy named Earl Harvin, if you know. Don't know. Earl, Earl yeah, don't know. Monster, monster. Right. From, from Houston, lives in, uh, from, uh, I'm sorry, from Dallas. Okay. Lives in Berlin now. Um, really, really heavy cat. Yeah. Um, 
So I just needed somebody to kind of fill in the gap until Earl was available. I never met Jay until the one rehearsal day. We had one rehearsal day for the whole tour. And I walked into a rehearsal space in North Hollywood, wherever we were, yeah. and I still didn't see him. I just saw his kit set up, and I just thought, well, this will work fine, whoever this can is. <laughs> right, what's the configuration yeah. of the kit? <laughs> uh, and we played one gig, Yeah. and I very sheepishly called Earl and said, you know, I know I've got you booked for this, but if it doesn't, if it's not a hardship on you, I want to, I need to see this through. Something go, I think something's going on mm. in this configuration that I need to sort of explore it. I didn't want to just play two weeks and just be done. Was he cool about it? He was, because fortunately he had, he had something else that was pending that, that could have, and he said, if it was a problem, because we were, we were good friends. All right. He said, because a lot of guys wouldn't be mad. No, no, and I said, if it, if it yeah. is a problem, I'm, I'm, yeah. I, I'm, I've made a commitment to you, and I asked you to make one to me. I'm just saying, yeah. if it was all the same, this would be really good for me to be able to do this. And it was no small thing for me to make the call. You know, no, 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 no. That's not the best before. move. Yeah, that's not. Uh, and had not, not had the relationship that I had with Earl, I wouldn't have. Right. I didn't have reason to think that he had something else that was also leaning on the same time. Um, but in that moment, it was fine. And I've never since not worked with Jay. Wow. You know, when I could. So that's gone on 14 years. Yeah. And, and his wife's an amazing bass player, right? Well, that's how they... M uh, they they got together now because we were touring together. Uh -huh. she, was, she, she was my touring bass player at the yeah. time. And the only reason that she has not been for the last years is because I worked with David Pilch. Yeah. Um, because I, he's a close friend and I'm so in love with the upright bass. Yeah, and, well, the, yeah. And Jen doesn't do that. Yeah. But I've just finished a new record of my own just mastered it on Friday, and Jenny's the bass player on that record. Right, because it called for it just it called, called for a different thing. Dave was away, but also I was really hearing it as an electric bass record, not an upright bass record, sure. and it just was felt like the right thing to do. Just yeah. felt well, you got right. the right crew of people, and you have the right team. You know, got and nobody more supportive than Jenny, as far as saying to me, as she always has, you have to do what you need to do creatively. Yeah, I love playing with you. I play with you at the drop of a hat. But right. don't call me because you're obligated. Call me right. when you need me. Well, that's the beauty, yeah. I think, of what you do and the way you write. You know, the, 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 it's, you know, it, 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 it feels very much, and, and I have to say, you know, I'm actually most familiar with Reverie. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not like, you know, <laughs> it's funny. I, I'm really, all my friends will, you know, sort of laugh, but I, I don't, there's just certain stuff I don't know. And I freely admit, like, there's certain stuff. Everyone, you know, I remember sitting with, uh, you know, I worked with Daniel Lenoir on a mm. film score, and he was talking about Dylan, and they were all talking about that. I, I don't know any... I just freely yeah. admit, I didn't go through that filter. That's not what mm. I think. Sure. But I heard Reverie, man, and there's something about that out of all the albums. There's a sound... I don't want to say a simplicity. It just seems mad honest. There's a beauty to that record. Well... You know, and it... I would imagine, obviously, recorded in here, skinny legs and all, windows open, you know. Well, that was a deliberate choice. I mean, we not, yeah. not, we not only recorded it here, but we, first of all, the, the sonic, I mean, the sonic template for that record in particular is, is the album Money Jungle, which mm. I assume that you know that record. Well, it's a, don't assume everyone okay. listening knows. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's, yeah. there's a monster uh, trio record called Money Jungle, which is Duke Ellington, Max Roach, and Charles Mingus. Um, they're playing standards for the most part, and you know Duke standards, and jazz again. By the way, Mingus and <laughs> and Max Roach are not even on speaking terms 
in this session, as I understand it. No. The playing is so aggressive, so tough. You can really hear it slamming against the walls. You know, you hear the room because mm. they're so, you know, Duke's dug in. And as it turns out, you know, somebody who's ever idea to put Duke together with these, like, hipsters, yeah. you know, he's hipper than both of them. Oh, combined. He's bolder than yeah. they are. Yeah. But it's a tough, aggressive record. Like, listen to Caravan on there. Mm. Just the, the grit and the muscle of that There's play. a lot of personalities So in we that talked one. a lot. I talked a mm. lot. In fact, I was at a at a uh, Thanksgiving party at Jay Bellarose, at Jay and Jenny's house. Uh, the piano player, Kivis Chancia, who was going to be the, sure. the piano player on that record, yeah. and Davey Pilch and our engineer Ryan were all at the same party. Jay has a man cave where people sit and smoke pipes and cigars and listen to jazz records on an old caliphone like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and at one point, I'm in the room, I'm in the, the, the speakeasy, the, 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 the man cave with Jay, and we realized, you know, as I'm angling towards making this record, that we've both been obsessing over Money Jungle without talking about it. Sure. We've both been listening to it. I said, well, it's completely to the point of, of what I think has to happen. Mm. So I go and I grab Kefis and I grab Pilchy and I grab Ryan out of the other room. We go in and we put it on. I'm talking about what's happening with this music. <laughs> I mean, it sounds almost like a Bowery Boys. Like, come here, fellas. Yeah, exactly. We're going to do this. Yeah. <laughs> we, we pulled ourselves into a small room and I put this yeah. record on. And we're talking about what's exciting about it, the way that it's sonically working. And we decided that even though I've got a lot of, se I got as much separation in there as I want. I mean, there's a drum room, there's a yeah. vocal booth. Most stuff happens in the main room, but we separate as as it makes sense. Sure. A lot of times it doesn't. But we decided for this record in particular that not only would we be in the same room together, but we would set up as close together as we physically could that would allow Ryan to also do what he felt like he needed to do. Right, just to be able to control frequencies. So, and, I mean, you know. I can show you in there. I mean, yeah. we were all set up, the four of us, in, you know, Kefis, you know, who's a mad scientist, he's like a real-time sound designer. Mm -hmm. I said, you can do whatever you want, but you have to do it on the upright piano. I don't care what you do to it. You can right. prepare it like Cage. Yeah. I don't care what you do, but you have to do it from this chair. Yeah. My idea was that we're going to speak from these most primitive chairs. You know, there's drums, there's upright bass, Acoustic guitar, upright piano. Right. Anything that happens has to happen from these voices. Gotcha. If we want to be more exotic, it has to come from intention. It's not from reaching for a more exotic instrument. Right. If you want to, if this needs to be more expansive, it's not about adding elements. Right. You play more expansively. Right. Everything happens Less in the performance more. from this spot. Right. And we set up as close. So I mean, Jay was as close to me. I'm sitting with a against a brick wall. Yeah. With a guitar and a, you know acoustic guitar and singing, mm. you know, the drums are as close to me as that guitar is right there. Which is about eight feet. About eight feet. Mm. You know, eight feet. Uh, the, the bass would have been about where that corner post is, so about, you know. Yeah, it was closer. Six, you know, six five feet. and a half feet from me. The piano was about where you are. Four so feet. So three, you know. Three feet. So, yeah, as close as we could be, because we wanted to hear all that racket. Sounds like the Marx Brothers, not at the opera scene. Exactly you know? that, that idea. That's brilliant. And I'd also had the idea, it came to me in a flash, I was jet-lagged walking around the Picasso Museum in Barcelona where I just, for whatever reason, in that particular hallucination that jet-lag sometimes offers, I just heard the whole thing. I knew that it was going to be all acoustic, I knew that those four people were going to be involved, I knew that we should be in the same room, and I also imagined, for whatever reason in that moment, that we're not, gonna, not only going to leave the 
all the windows open. We were going to put microphones at the windows mm. and incorporate all that ambient noise of dogs, trucks, yeah. conversation, whatever was happening. That that was going to be part of the fabric of the of the picture. Sure. That you know this idea that songs don't arrive in a vacuum. You know, in that moment, my office was upstairs. I'd be working on a song. People would freely walk through the room to the bathroom on the main floors through that room. Right. People would stop next to my desk and have full conversations. You know, yeah. it's like songs don't arrive in a vacuum. No. There's no reason to think that now that they're going to be articulated, we have to retreat into some hermetically sealed no, chamber. Yeah. Um, and I was really infatuated by the noise. You know, like we, we all have headphone mixers, and you know, yeah, the ambient noise of the outside was something that came up on a fader. Sure. So as we were recording, you could listen to as much of that or as little as anybody wanted to. Ah. But we all learned that once we were hearing it, the birds and the trucks and whatever, and whatever yeah. that if you, if you turned it off, same when we were mixing, yeah. the picture was significantly diminished. It's like, like all of a sudden there was all this grain in the air, all this life, all this collision of, of sound and, 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 and motion. Um, it's like the whole thing got cut in half. Mm. You know, it went from being a three-dimensional sonic picture to a one-dimensional one. Right, 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 right. So, I mean, it's not for everybody, and it's not for every occasion. No, no. But for that record, the way that I want it to be sort of viscerally raw, and even though a very acoustic record, still to be chaotic and big and as tough as it needed to be, where it needed to be. That's how it was going to work. Something about it sonically, and I mean, I know you worked with T-Bone, and I know you worked with Daniel, and I haven't worked, I've worked once with T-Bone, but a couple times with Daniel, and it's like... The sound, that's the, the sound thing. I have to say, like, and this is no diss to them, it's the best sounding record. Mm -hmm. I, and I hope you take that as mm -hmm. a compliment because, right. I, you know, I know you were telling me earlier, you're not an engineer, you don't mix, Ryan does the mixing, you know, it's just like, um, yeah, it really comes, the, but the, the idea it, came to fruition. I mean, like, Even you, though I'm not an engineer, I, you I, are. I think I about mean, sound, I mean, sound itself has meaning. I talk about this all the time. Sure. You know, not just about how it serves a song, you know, sound when you hear it, whatever it is, has a meaning. Sorry. There's, <laughs> that has a meaning. <laughs> has a meaning all its own. Uh, you know, there's a gravitas to just tone. Yeah. Uh, forget, it's not just validated by how it's applied. No, no, you no, know, no, no. It shows up and has a character. Absolutely. And, you know, Reverie was really about, at least the sonic concept, was about acknowledging that 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 stuff is is not a separate part of this fabric. Right. It's you know it's the back side of it, but it's still part of the fabric. Right. It's just a, it's um, a constant. So once I decided that, I felt really liberated by the idea of how those very few elements, you know, guitar, upright bass, piano, and drums, and a voice, you know, had to had to say everything. Yeah. And again, if it if it needed to be bolder, it had to come from an, Intention. It couldn't come from. I'm going to plug into an amp now because I want right. to be bigger. Right. So, you know, nothing is bigger and tougher than an acoustic guitar if you mic it that way. If you yeah. present it that way in the picture, there's nothing about an electric guitar that once it's coming out of off a record is inherently louder. No. Or has more authority than an acoustic guitar. That's really hard for a lot of people. How to is understand. it? You know, how is it mic'd, and then how is it? You know, what's the proximity to anything else in the picture? Right. Um, yeah. So you know. I, thought a lot about that from listening to Lead Belly and for, as an example and thinking about how incredibly aggressive and powerful 
yeah. his right hand was on a 12 string guitar, how oh, percussive yeah. that was, how orchestral the whole thing became. Yeah. Um, we talked a lot about just sound being orchestral, and I think Reverie, even though it's really played, you know, like we make every record here, it's people are improvising take to take based on the shape and tone of a song. Absolutely. Um, you know, but I, I was really, really, really interested in in the orchestration from this very raw place, but decidedly an orchestral. Oh, it, it definitely. You know. I mean, listen. You know, a lot of times, you know, I I like to think of you know records. You have an idea, you go for it, and sometimes you know it's a twenty nine foot leap. You know, between a build two buildings that are thirty feet apart. You know, yeah. like you get almost there. Yeah, yeah. And the beauty of it is you get to move on and you yeah. get to do something else. I have to say that one really nails it. I well, mean, thank it, you. You I mean, know, I, at that point, I'd never had more fun making a record. Um, and that's great because it. I mean, it's not your last one because obviously you just yeah. mastered one. But yeah. you know, it should get better. It shouldn't get well, worse. I, I, I feel like. I mean, there's no question that I. I mean, if you don't believe that you're doing your best work now, I don't know how you keep going. Um, no matter right. what you think about it after the fact. I mean, I'm sure that the record I just finished is my best record, and I, I can say that it doesn't matter to me in 10 years whether I still believe that. Right. But the, the fact that I have to be invested, fully invested and authentically invested in that as an idea now. Yeah. Uh, else I wouldn't call it a finished record. I wouldn't, well, I, I wouldn't be done with it. It's the same notion as like Sugar Ray Robinson going into a fight saying like, I'm not going to really hit him that hard. Yeah. Why bother? Yeah. Why you know, bother? you're in the fight, just do it. You know, it, it, yeah. I don't think of any recording as disposable. Whether I'm making a, a demo in GarageBand or whatever, I just think of it, I don't, prefer to think of it as, well, this is the demo, now this is the real thing. This is a it's recording. It's all the real thing. And if it's not a recording that's going to hold up for me, that, as I learn that, then I, I make a different recording. Right. But I don't think of anything as being disposable. Do you embrace the, the technology side of oh, music? I love, every bit of it. I love every bit of it. I just, I, I know that, like, you know, I know that in this lifetime, I'm not going to speak Brazilian Portuguese like my wife does. I wish I was, <laughs> I wish I did. I just know that I'm not going to. Why not? I, I'm not going to get there. I don't think. Don't I'm be gonna... negative. No, but don't I'm saying... limit yourself, Joe. No, I know. It's not that I might not rethink that. <laughs> no, I, this I hear moment, you. moment, it's like I know I'm not going to. I don't have the time or the inclination to become a great engineer. I don't need to be. I need to know a great one, mm. and I do. Um, that doesn't mean I'm not uh, as involved or don't care as much about that part of the job. Right. It just means that I'm. I'm free to think differently about it because he's there to do that part of it. And it br that brings the reason why I was poking around on the technology thing is that, you know, so I grew up in a way, you know, my first intro in the studios was Atlantic. So I was in the studio with, you know, Fathead, Chuck Rainey, Purdy, like, you know, and I was six playing yeah. the organ in between takes yeah. for Berta Flack records, you yeah. know what I mean? And I know people, you know, listen, I, you know, I will always talk about my old man and always talk about, you know, mm. I mean, please, if your old man was doing this stuff, yeah. I mean, I just celebrate it every day of my yeah. life, you know? Yeah. And I have to say, like, I, I started making records when I was like 15, you know, playing on people's records. Mm. And just like, I have witnessed in the last, and this is why I'm talking to you right mm. today, because you, you make records that are teamwork. And you make records where, you know, it's almost like, you know, Mel Brooks said to Richard Pryor for Blazing Saddles, we're all going to be partners. Mm. I'm just going to be a little bit more of a partner. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. You know, I get a little bit more. But the thing is, it's like, 
I've watched an entire generation of musicians go from this team mentality in a studio with a thought, even if the thought is a bad Japanese pop record, mm -hmm. it's still an engineer, an assistant engineer, a rhythm section, a singer, this whole thing. Now everything I do is staring at a computer. Mm -hmm. and Not everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm lucky. I'm, mm -hmm. I get to work with a lot of people. But it's, it's kind of going away, and the stories of doing it, and the way of doing it, is that it's going away mm -hmm. as well. Like I, I spoke with, um, do you know what producer Stuart Levine? Stuart Levine did The Crusaders. He did I certainly know him by yeah. Jamie Cullum, mm -hmm. Simply Red. Mm -hmm. you know. Did you ever see the movie When We Were Kings? Yeah, sure. He's the guy that says you have to fly in the air to get to Zaire. Yeah, He's yeah. like the, you know. He, he said, man, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here making wagon wheels and everybody's going by in a Model T. You know, like, yeah. he's like, yeah. you, know, no one, you know, I go to studios now and it's like a kid staring at a computer. And he doesn't even have a controller. It's just like you're yeah. drawing in the record. Yeah. And it's just this, whoa, like, you know, do you change with the times? I mean, I don't think, you know, listen, I'm sitting in an incredible studio that has a vibe and it's a thing. You don't need to change with any times because you set your times. I get it. Mm. But what's your viewpoint of, of sort of, I mean, this is like a vague question. I mean, the, the way that it's gone from this, you know, Cecil B. DeMille-ish kind of everyone's yeah. making and we're, come on, let's mm. make the record to, you know, Swedish guy in a room in Stockholm well, making, you yeah. know. I mean, we're trying to, I mean, I like to think that we observe, at least for my, for what I like, for what I'm after, the best of both worlds. I mean, everything that happens here, or any record I produce, whether it happens here or somewhere else, it all happens f from performance. Yeah. I mean, nothing, I, I'm not a purist. I don't do that because I'm a purist. I just think that's the closest way, that's the easiest and fastest and most direct way to get to what I care about. Right. Which is, you know the emotional content of a song and how it gets eliminated by people in a room. Right. I want to hear the room. I want to be able to picture, you know, this collective, whether I know who they are or not. Mm. I, I want to I want to be seduced into, into imagining that people are in a room together. But that's yeah. the way I work. People are in a room together playing. That said, I would do anything to make something meaningful and timeless come out of a pair of speakers. Yeah. So even though that we, you know, uh, Ryan and I, you know, record to Pro Tools, he's a genius at... at at that, um, but we also you you know have a, a, as good a vintage mic and outboard gear collection as almost any studio that's still going on in LA because studios have been parted out so oh, much. Yeah. I mean, between us, you know, we have a lot of great great gear, both new and old, mm. and we do what we want. And if we're playing live in a room, but people say that's that's a magical take. That's exactly what I care about. Mm. But you know, the take before the way it decayed at the end, yeah. that broke my heart. Let's cut that on. Yeah. You know, I I would do anything. I wouldn't resist any impulse that m worked musically right. for the sake of whether I thought it was honest or not. Look, right, every, right, right. every fucking bit of it is theater. Yeah. You know, honesty in that regard is wildly overrated. I don't buy this idea of like, because it came out with an acoustic guitar, it's like, you know, it was the red badge of courage. Yeah. Look, it's all, you have to be courageous to do any of it. Yeah. And for that matter, anybody who gets bogged down uh, talking about Modern technology is if it's, you know, by its nature, a diminishment from how they used to do things. Oh, it misses Look, the point. Yeah. when John Lomax, or Alan Lomax, Alan was Lomax. clawing on his belly, you know, out in, 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 in Louisiana to record Lead Belly, you know, and you put that record on, 
That's not lead belly, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's a sample of lead belly. It's an electronic impulse that puts you in mind of lead belly. Yeah. So don't go thinking that because he was doing it that way and we're doing it with a computer, that that in itself is any more legitimate or this is any more phony. Right. You know, it's all theater. Yeah. But I think that the, that the thing that I care about, the emotional quality of a song and the way that it typically might strike me and move me happens you know, for the most part, by people tossing it around in, a, in real time, yeah. in a room together. Yeah. Ergo, that's the only way that I work. Yeah. I've never worked any other way. I don't use a click. I don't use... Uh, you don't need a click, you got bell ropes. You know, or <laughs> anybody. Because, I, because music is, is elastic. Yeah. I mean, just for the instant, you know, get to the end of Tangled Up in Blue on a CD, as one example, and then quickly just hit the reset button so it starts over. Mm. And listen to how how much the tempo is varied oh, from the beginning. I mean, you go, yeah. well, why wouldn't it? Yeah. For the, for the drama of the story, why the hell wouldn't it? You know, the analogy that I always go back to when people want to insist or try to insist on the, the validity of a click track, I just say, you know what? The part of music that most of us are, are touched by just doesn't, you know, uh, is, is not influenced by that domain. No. You know, I agree. It's just like if you're, you know, you know, making love to your wife, and she said after the fact, you know, honey, that was amazing. Except, you know what? You sped up at the end of the way. I mean, there well, are certain <laughs> moments when the when the narrative suggests that you might. That it, you know what? The song might speed up. Every single Motown record varies Bob in Marley tempo. Records. Bob Marley. You know, listen to him come in. I mean, listen Mills to how, Brothers, Golden Gate. I mean, listen to you know Bob and I'm Bob Marley. I'm, uh, Bob's important character for me. Um, how much the band moves in regard to where he is with his phrasing. Ray yeah. Charles, same thing. Yeah. Um, so that's a long and, and sprawling way to answer your question. In the, no, it's my, not. It's is, is for technology, is that you know I'm I'm down for every bit of it that facilitates the work at hand. And for me, right. the work at hand is is a is a very primitive thing. Yeah. Um, we don't have to work as primitives to get there as long as we're willing to give it the ultimate authority yeah. which is that visceral part of music that makes you want to start the song over again when you've gotten to the end of it yeah. period done do I want to hear it again when I've gotten to the end of it yeah that's all that matters very does cool. it feel like a living thing when I step away from it that's the whole gag well any kind of technology will enable that it's really just yeah. comes down to what the music is and what happened I remember I was in a mastering session once with um, with Bono and I was sitting with Gene Gene Paul he's Les Paul's son mm -hmm. he's a major major recording engineer he mixed Killing Me Softly he did all the average white band stuff Aretha he learned from Tom Dowd this is a learned individual and Bono says to Gene listen you know, we're mastering this is it this is the end of you know everything and there were three takes of a song and he said I want to I want to combine all three and they were all like you know I mean yeah. wildly different volumes wildly different you know and I just remember I'm, I'm sitting there going like well Gene's Gene's going to get a little persnickety right yeah. <laughs> Gene likes the his pencils are sharpened and you know yeah. all the I's and T's are crossed a lot like why would you have dealt with this before you're in the mastering oh abso yeah. absolutely yeah like you know he's not a cat that wears like the white lab coat but you know yeah, he'll, he'll, he'll throw some breeze at you for not having your technical stuff together and I'm trying to remember the song it almost doesn't even matter he yeah. just said edit this version into this version here 
and I think it was actually from Million Dollar Hotel. Mm. And it was um, literally the, the, the one take had a background vocal with like drowning in reverb going into like not a background part, like yeah. just boom, it just, the part just died. Mm -hmm. And the look on Gene's face was just like, he just, he kind of just was perplexed and then he looked over at him and he said, well, I think you know what you're doing, man. Like, I, I, yeah. I, I totally respect yeah. your process. Yeah. I wouldn't do this, but I'm out here to judge. And it was exactly like, you know, you still want to listen to the whole thing. You mm. still want to go back and hear it on repeat. Yeah. Who gives a shit? Is it you know, I mean, it, it, yeah. I mean, there are moments on, uh, on Bob Dylan's record, Time Out of Mind, for instance, that, yeah. that, that Langlois made, yeah. where Bob suggested when he was, after they recorded everything and he was ill in bed, at home in Malibu, uh, um, believing he was going to die from that heart infection that he oh, had at yeah. the time. Yeah. Where Mark Howard, the engineer, would come over with uh, probably Daps at the time, because Dan held on to Daps longer than anybody seemed to have <laughs> that format. Um, <laughs> yes. Listening to stuff, and Bob was giving Mark, like, oh, these are great mixes. I want you to edit, like, f but from this verse, from this take to this, whatever. Right. And when you hear it, I mean, there are moments where there's an edit where Keltner or Brian Blade, you know, yeah. who, who, they're both on the record, yeah. where, the, where the drum pattern changes completely. Yeah. All, and the perspective of the mics shift, if you're listening to the headphones, all of a sudden, you, like, it goes into a, like a completely different figure. Yeah. The, the, the sonic image is different. Yeah. But as, you, as it turns out, I have no doubt somebody would have said, that won't work, because you're cutting right where there's a cymbal been hit, and then you're going to cut to a take where there's no cymbal ringing. Yeah. Well, fuck it. That's, yeah. what I, that's how I'm hearing it. Yeah. Because he cared about the vocal delivery and he was working from full takes. Sure. And so you can hear that stuff all over the place, but it doesn't take you out of anything musically. No. I mean, no. I'm always, I won't say fighting, but lobbying with artists that I'm producing. For instance, if they're a singer and they do something they didn't mean to do, but it happens with, with instruments too. All the time. Where right? I just say, please try to hear this not as a mistake, but just as an option. Like if I go, I, you know, like, oh, could you fix my voice there with my voice cracked? I'd say, well, you know what? If it took me out of the picture, I'd be the first person to say we should fix it. But right now, the way your voice cracks there just kills me in the best way. Yeah. So for a minute, try not to hear it as, you're just hearing it as that's not what you meant to do. It's, but just try hearing it not for who you are and what it says about you as a practitioner. Yeah. Just think about what it is and does it work? It's not you coming out of the speaker. It's yeah. it. Oh. Does it work? Quit thinking about how it's, does it speak about you yeah. as a singer. How does that, what is that performance offering this song right. as a realization? That's the, that's the issue. You know, I find that the older artists get and the, and the further along in the process, most of the time, and this is going to bring me to an artist that we both work with, they, they just let, they just agree, they just say, you, you have an idea, I get it. It's the younger artists that fight you so hard and mm -hmm. that notion where, you know, it's like, you know, mm -hmm. they, they, a mistake, you know. Yeah. And, and actually, we were talking about something earlier where I was saying, like, I got to school and it was like this thing where, you know, if you liked a certain musician or if you liked a certain thing, there's so, I always thought it was, there was so much fear. Mm -hmm. It was, it, and that's a weird thing to think of, but you're, you know, you're, you know, you're in this thing where people hear a mistake and they just they just hold on they don't you know they don't let it go. Like sure. I've worked with certain artists. I remember I worked on a oh God I love him and he'll kick my ass for saying this, but I worked on a David Sanborn record for about a year, mm -hmm. and 
he was the epitome of, I, I heard a thing. And the thing that he heard, like, no one living in the history of Earth, plus who's going to live on yeah. Earth, would hear it. Mm -hmm. And he would do yeah. it, the first take would be like, well, that's fine. You know, it's the soul. I mean, and, and like, when I say that's fine, it's not in like, well, that's fine. It's like, you killed it. That sounds incredible. And, um, you know, long story short, he went through 700 reads on the album. Yeah. And we also flew all the solos into a Synclavier. And instead yeah. of putting them on, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, you know, that's really not letting go of the yeah. thing. And then you get to the artist that I want to talk about yeah. because he's the most timeless cat of all time, Jimmy Scott. Yeah. Talk about phrasing and <laughs> how did you, I know you worked with Jimmy, I know he's been in this room, mm -hmm. any room he's ever been in, yeah. I'm happy to be yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a guy that's not going to get hung up on anything because he's just him all the time. Like, yeah. How did that happen? Well, it, I was producing him singing two songs for a, a really horrendous uh, Mickey Rourke film that ended up going straight, you know. Straight to airplanes. <laughs> worse, straight to streaming on Netflix. Not even rentable on Netflix. It went right. straight free to a stream. <laughs> free stream, that was it. Uh, Mickey Rourke and the Judy Garland story. Horrible, horrible movie. But it facilitated my uh, uh, recording some really, really great music. Mickey Rourke played a trumpet player in the film. Oh my. Uh, so that it was a, it, oh my! It was driven by music. So he um, wasn't playing Chet Baker, was he? It was sort of referencing Chet Baker. Oh god! It, it, yeah, it was that, like wow. ex-junk. Yeah, it yeah. was as Pretty. bad as you can imagine. Wow! Um, well, but, I'm glad you're but, going on record about but, this. But, but I got on. Uh, cool. You know, the fortunate thing for me is that because they were going to be shooting picture to the music we were recording. Sure. I was I was producing music that in the moment didn't have to serve an image. The music just had to be great. And Beautiful. I didn't know the music that the film was going to be such a disaster. Doesn't matter. You're in your moment and um, you do what you got so, to do. Uh, I had Jimmy Scott here one day to sing How? two standards. <laughs> and um, it was amazing in every way. Yeah. I mean, at that point, and you know, he was 84 at the time. This was, mm -hmm. what, three years ago now. Right. Um, you know, he shows up not only in a wheelchair, but prone in a wheelchair. I mean, sure. a wheelchair where he's almost laying down. Yeah. I'm I had a really, really great band put together. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the young New Orleans trumpeter, Christian Scott, who oh, was, sure. who was the voice sure. of Mickey Rourke's <laughs> trumpet player character in the movie. So right. he, I, I was using him on everything, just so there was even stuff that we thought was only going to be on the soundtrack, not actually uh, specific to as source music in the film. Sure. We just wanted to have this continuing trumpet voice. Yeah. So it was not Christian. My son Levon was on tenor sax, and I told Levon at the time, uh, this is as close to you will come in this lifetime to being Lester Young to Billie Holiday, ah. to play saxophone, you know, accompanying Jimmy Scott. That kind of phrasing, that idiosyncratic uh, a point of view as a singer. And he appreciated that. Oh, completely. I know he's in it. Oh, my, yeah. oh, my son started playing sax tenor because of Lester Young. He understood that, that completely. So there was my son, there was Christian Scott, it was David Pilch, Jay Bellarose, Patrick Warren, Greg Lees, Van Dyke Parks. That was the band. Slouches. Oh, everyone. <laughs> Van Dyke. Van Dyke was the piano. Love Van Dyke. Player. And nobody a better like pit piano accompanist to a vocalist than him. No. He really comes from that world. Yeah. And the evening before, Solomon Burke had been here recording us the last thing that he had recorded, I think. 
Oh, man. Um, for the same film. So Solomon Burke was here the night before like, Jimmy was like here? eight in the evening, Solomon was here, Jimmy was here at 10 the next week. It's morning. rough being Joe Henry. Well, wow, that yeah. That's how Joe unusual. Henry rolls, That's how we rolled that week. <laughs> but so Jimmy's here, he's But pro. Jimmy's here, yeah. um, and he delivers, he, he, one song he'd recorded before, called When Did You Leave Heaven? Yeah. Another song that has been my favorite of Ray Charles, um, called Just For a Thrill, mm. which Jimmy did not know, but learned for the occasion. Um, and I'm saying somebody who just so in that moment was Jimmy delivering this song at me. Yeah. I mean, remember him? Never heard it before. Through the glass door. I mean, he, I, I had sent it to him. He had learned it. And he had gotcha. the lyrics. Okay. But his interpretation of it, looking at me through the glass door, I'm sitting on the floor, so I'm sitting right in front of him. Um, forget somebody thinking about, yeah, it's a hip arrangement, or I want to read, sing that line. It was none of that. It was somebody who had one foot in this world and one foot in the next, who was just in that moment willing to abide with us. That's what it was. That's Jimmy, though, man. And you know, Van Dyke called me the next day, and Van Dyke's been in you know every scenario you can imagine. Who, you know, he just said, you know, that was the Lord's work we were doing yesterday. Yeah, that sounds just like this that. idea of just in that moment, in support to him. I mean, everybody was, it sounds cliche to say there was not a dry eye in the room. There was not, though. Yeah. Everybody understood that there was something, that this was a moment. Yeah. For all of us to be in his orbit, for him to be as old and frail as he was in that moment. Yeah. You know, it was easy to believe, or easy to imagine this could have been his last session. I, don't, I hope it isn't. I hope it wasn't. Sure. But you could easily believe it, yeah. as frail as he was. But his his vocal delivery. I mean, the songs never even got mixed. I mean, I possessed them. I I own them. I suppose I controlled them. Sure. They never got used in the film. The film was a disaster. Probably for um, the best. You don't want them going out yeah. on that kind of note. But know, the music. Setting. These two tracks are heart stoppingly beautiful. Even just the roughs. I mean, mm. it was just one of those really really great transcendent moments where you understand that it's not about. Did anybody make a mistake? It's not about... It's so other. It's truth. I yeah. mean, Jimmy, you know... You can't... I don't think you can hear those, that moment, that, uh, either of those songs, and not just understand that you're, that, you know, you've stepped into this incredibly vivid weather system. <laughs> and it's happening all around you. It's not yeah. about uh, managing it or wrangling it or, yeah. like, this is the perfect day. I just wish that one... Airstream that's blowing that tree yeah. over there would you know it's not yeah. about shut up schmuck you, you, yeah let it happen you know you're just in this moment that the universe has invited you uh, to attend and that's all there is to it and mm -hmm. but the beauty is once you've been in a moment like that and you've really consciously stored it you know you can revisit that as needed to, to be reminded of here's the shit that matters here's the part of it, this conversation that is only a distraction. Yeah. Nothing about that thing that you described uh, with Sanborn. You know, with, with, with mm -hmm. David Sanborn was about that being a better record as a listening experience for somebody. No. It's about his fear and insecurity. Yeah. But you know, full circle. I you know I I characterize my job as a producer when somebody says who doesn't know. Mm -hmm. You know what is it that a producer does? And I say well it's different artist to artist project to project. But the 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 real truthful answer is that. I do whatever I have to do as a producer 
to allow the artist and the musicians in the room to feel fearless. Bingo. That's the whole thing. Anytime people are unafraid, they'll give you everything. Yeah. And even when we're playing all together in the same room and there's bleed everywhere, my engineer, Ryan Freeland, has never told me that I couldn't edit, fix, fly, tune, whatever needed to happen. He never told me that I couldn't do it because of the bleed. Mm. He's heroic. At f He's a musician first, so he's a very musical problem solver. Mm. So once people understand that, hey, we're this close to a take, but in this next one, you had a new idea. Mm. And I don't want you to be afraid to pursue it because, well, we're this close, I don't want to blow their take. You're not going to blow anything. Anything can be addressed. Mm. Don't ever be afraid to play what you feel and what you hear in a moment if you think it's going to illuminate the song and the, and the singer. Once people understand that they're not going to fuck anything up, that anything is addressable, mm. they're fearless. And when they're fearless, they will give you everything. You're 100% right, man. I sat with Les McCann last week, who's he's getting up, he's older. Yeah. You know, he's, he's, in a, he's in a similar state as Jimmy, you know, wheel, wheelchair, wheelchair bound. And we, we spoke about one record in, in particular. I don't know if, how well you know his work, but you just almost verbatim spoke about a, the way he spoke about a record he made called Layers. Do you know Layers? Mm -hmm. So that's the first record. Um, a guy named Bob Lifton at Regent Sounds, at Regent Studios on 57th in New York, he basically locked up two 16-track machines mm -hmm. To, to make the first 32-track recording, which, you know, in 1972 yeah. or whatever, that was a big deal. Sure, you know, sure. Like, but the, the, the core of the record, it was a ver it's a very emotional record. It's a very synthesizer-heavy record, but it's also heavy, heavy, heavy emotion. And the listener might not know that. Les had always had a, an incredibly hard time with engineers because based on fear, and, and he always addresses, his whole mantra is, it's love or fear mm -hmm. and if you let go of fear and you just let things happen you know it's a little hippie-ish but you know he's a hundred percent right no it's not actually I mean that I mean to me that's you that's know, life I mean yeah. you get that from Rilke I mean fuck the hippies you know I mean <laughs> I mean that was uh, that you, idea I'm sorry the, who do you get it from uh, Rilke you know the, the poet you're talking to I'm 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 yeah. I'm envious for you. <laughs> that, they, that you have Rilke in, in, yeah, in your future. <laughs> Absolutely, Rilke, who's Love a and fear. Uh, German poet. You can also get that from Emerson and Walt Whitman too. Um, Keith Emerson. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs>